Pray with me. Oh, Father, we just thank you for the privilege of being able to enter into your presence this morning. Um, God, just to have a place um, with just a, a piece of the body of Christ that we can come and love one another and hold one another up and build one another up and then come together and somehow, God, um, bring you joy and honor and praise. God, there's nothing that we bring here today um, that you can't handle, and there's also nothing that we have today that didn't ultimately come out of your hand. God, I just ask that you teach us this morning. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, God. May these meditations be from you and of you. Be present with us this morning. God will give you all the praise and all the glory. Amen. So over the last several weeks, we've talked a lot about specifically the prophet Elijah um, and this ministry of Elijah. And, and we've really, over the last couple of weeks, been focusing on how Elijah had this calling and through the threat of a very powerful woman, um, fear took root, and Isaiah, Isaiah, Elijah finds himself on top of this mountain that I, I believe he was never meant to be on. And we, we talked a lot last week about how God sustained him physically, emotionally, spiritually. He restores Elijah, and, and he sets him back on this road that he was never intended to leave. This morning, we're going to talk about what it means to be a prophet. We're going to take a step back and look at sort of a 30,000 foot view of what it means to be a prophet. What is prophecy? Um, I got an email this week from the vineyard. Uh, oddly enough, um, we have that slide. These two books that are on sale, and some of you may recognize the names. I, I'm not familiar with Jonathan Kahn, but I do know David Jeremiah. Um, this is the cultural view of prophecy. This is what we all think of, right, when we think of prophecy. is foretelling these events, um, foretelling, often foretelling some kind of disaster or the end of the world. Um, and, and we could get into the reasons why why these types of books sell. I don't want to go there this morning. But this is the popular view. We hear the name Nostradamus a lot when you talk about prophecy and these sort of vague teachings that could mean lots of things. And because they could mean lots of things, they're determined that they mean these very specific things. Um, this is not the style of prophecy that I believe the Bible is calling us to. A prophet is not necessarily someone who foretells the future, but rather someone who foretells the Word of God. We've, we've said that phrase several times in the last few weeks, but this morning I want to really dig into what foretelling is. It's, it, honestly, Microsoft Word doesn't even know the word foretell. 
it gives me the little red squiggly saying it's not a word and it doesn't exist. But I think it is, and we're going to use it this morning regardless. Honestly, if you have a word that's not a word, as long as you say it with enough confidence and emotion, people will go with it. David Platt says that prophecy is divine communication through human mediation. I love that definition because it's this gift from God. It's this message from God, these words from God that come through a human being. Which, for me, since I am quite familiar with my own brokenness and my own sins and my own mess-ups, it's beyond belief to me that God would have anything to say to anybody through me. So it's this gift from God. I mean... Honestly, when you think of divine communication through human mediation, if that's not grace, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. If if God is going to allow you to somehow take part in his ministry, regardless of what you've done, it blows your mind that God would use us. And it's not a new idea. We read this story of Elijah You look at Jonah, who we'll talk about a little bit this morning. Moses, who we'll talk about a little bit this morning. Really broken men. Really fearful men. I mean, the the number one thing they all have in common is they spent some time running from what it was God wanted them to do. Every one of them. And yet, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on this mountain and they see... Elijah and Moses and the resurrected Christ, or at least in in what would become his resurrected form, despite this, this brokenness. And we've talked a lot in the last several weeks about how God meets us in that, in that brokenness. And I don't think it's any coincidence that, that this sermon series took us here. I mean, We've talked, just in our church body, we've had some tremendous um, hurts and some tremendous things happen and struggles that, that I know multiple people are going through this morning. And yet, in God's perfect timing, he brings us to this sermon series about how God takes us in that brokenness and restores us. Paul talks about prophecy in a little bit different way. Paul says that prophecy is a spiritual gift. And we're going to turn this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, if you have a red pew Bible, it's page 960. If you have a black large print Bible, it's page 1,220. We'll start in verse 1 and read the first 19 verses here of chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says this, excuse me, he says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies 
speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. For the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so the church may be built up. We'll stop there for a second. Uh, In the Sunday school hour, despite my warning, someone confessed that they did get off on the tongues discussion. That's a totally separate sermon. That's a totally separate discussion, but we can't ignore it here. We can't ignore it. And what I think Paul is saying here, number one, you can't acknowledge spiritual gifts but say tongues don't exist. If, if spiritual gifts exist, then it stands to reason there are people who can speak in tongues. But in this first part, I think what Paul is saying is this gift of tongues is this language between you and God. It's this thing between you and God. And the gift of prophecy is God and you and the body of Christ. When you speak in tongues, people in the body don't know what you're saying, and so it does nothing for them. It's this intimacy between you and God. Paul says, I want you all to speak in tongues. And I think what Paul's saying there is, I want you all to have this intimacy with God. But even more so, I want you to have this intimacy with one another, to speak truth to one another. Continuing in verse 6, Paul says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Paul says, number one, isn't it interesting that this, this tongues discussion that goes on today was going on in the first century church? Paul is saying, with the way that you're using these gifts of tongues in Corinth, you're dividing your body. You're dividing the body of Christ because you're foreigners to one another. People don't know what you're saying. And so strive to excel in these gifts. You you want these manifestations of the Spirit. There There are ministries today that say, the, the evidence that you have the Holy Spirit is that you speak in tongues. You have this baptism of the Holy Spirit and you speak in tongues. And we've hinted at that here and there. And again, that's a, that's a totally separate discussion. I'd love to have that discussion with you or Dave could have that discussion with you offline sometime. But what Paul is saying is strive to excel in building up the church. You need one another. Build up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. 
Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And so Paul very clearly puts in perspective this gift of prophecy and the importance of building up the body of Christ. This is the very word of God. Thanks be to God. And so Paul very clearly says the primary purpose of prophecy is, is building up the body of Christ. But what is prophecy? How many of you, I'm just curious, how many of you believe that you've uttered some kind of prophecy at some point in your life? Okay. Did anybody listen to you? Prophecy, churches, it's these, it's these strong impressions to share something with someone. These strong impressions from God, and we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. To share something with someone, a message with someone. And Paul says, primarily for encouragement and building up of the body. That can take several forms. Sometimes we have these promptings to pray for someone. I've woken up at 2 in the morning before and had somebody on my mind and knew that I needed to pray for that person. That builds up the body. Interceding in front of God on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ builds up the body. I talk to that person the next day and I say, you know, I was up in the middle of the night last night thinking about you and, and, and praying for you. And every single time the individual has said, really? Because this was going on and I didn't even know about it. It's not magic. It's not emotional stories to pull out some response. It's simply part of being a part of the body of Christ. Have you ever been reading God's Word? Reading the Bible and a specific person's name flashes across your mind and you just know that somehow what you're reading applies to them. I'll share a quick story with you. I was uh, at Branchville one night uh, teaching a class um, on a Wednesday night and I was struggling with something. I was struggling hard, so hard I didn't want to be there. Um, I told the guys when I got there, I said, this is the last place I want to be tonight. I just want to be by myself someplace. And um, one of my um, incarcerated brothers came to me and said, I just, I just feel like you should hear this. And he read me some verses from uh, 1 Corinthians. And those verses took what I was dealing with and put it in perfect perspective. The perspective that I was struggling with, that I was missing, these verses allowed me to see what I was going through from God's perspective. Instead of from my perspective. I felt really helpless. And these verses just encouraged me and lifted me out of what I was in. And there are countless people in this body that have done the same thing for me. And there are countless people 
that as we talk about it, I know that your minds are filling with it have done the same for you. It's funny that, you know, I, I kind of grew up in a culture where the person who did that for you was your pastor. Dave has brought lots of things to me that were absolutely from God, and yet so have all of these other people. I just am beyond the point where I can believe in coincidence anymore. Because as we've seen this week, many of us, these things happen in our lives and they completely throw us off the rails. And it's just chaos. It's just chaos, seemingly. And yet when you read God's Word, and, you know, Job is always the example of suffering. Always, that we talk about. And yet nothing happened to Job outside of God's hand. Nothing. And so I've got to believe that there's nothing going on in my life that is out of God's hand, though I struggle so often to see the order in things, to see my order in things. My timing, my purposes. How does this benefit me? But if God is sovereign, Amen? Amen? If God is sovereign, then this Kairos timing that we talk so much about, we talk a lot about, and it has to be real. That God, if God is sovereign, He can absolutely bring you into someone else's path or bring someone into your path at just the right time for just the right purpose with just the right words that He has for you. And so often we just play that stuff off as if it's just coincidence. Or we hear someone talking about it and we think, well, that didn't really happen. We've all been guilty of it. I've been a skeptic more than most people. Dave talks about the three types of people. I'm a Greek. i got to know how the machine runs before I can trust the machine. That's how my mind works. I'm an IT guy. I'm paid to categorize and fix. Categorize and fix. Doesn't work so well in everyday life. So as I, as I hinted at earlier, how do we know that these impressions that we get are from God? Several times in my life I've said, God told me this, or God led me to that, and he, and he didn't. He didn't at all. And so I think one of the keys here is this idea of new revelation, of that God brings you these new ideas that are not somehow contained in his word, or don't necessarily match up with his word. In John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says to the disciples, he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus says that the, the Holy Spirit will, will recall these things that I have said, that I have taught you. The Holy Spirit will recall these things for you. But when you receive something and it doesn't match up here, it might be an indication that it is your human spirit 
bringing you that prompting because of something you want. You know, at those times when I said that God said this or God led me to that and it wasn't God, I wanted whatever it was so bad that I convinced myself that God wanted it too. And so sometimes we want to speak into someone's life. We want to tell somebody to straighten up or, to, or, or, or we want to encourage somebody so much that we'll call it God's word, even if it's not. Even if it's not. The better we know this, the more discerning we can be when it comes to those promptings. If you don't know what's in here, you know, furthermore, if God brings you these messages, if the Holy Spirit's job is to remind you of what's in here, and you don't know what's in here, how can you discern day to day? I think of Barnabas. We, talk, we studied Acts and Romans this summer, and we talked about Barnabas being the only one who would stick by Paul. Barnabas was called the son of encouragement. Um, so I've heard several people repeat this thing that Dave said a few weeks ago of our, our spirits recognizing one another, which is a, a really cool thing that I'd never really thought about, but it does happen. That's why I have friends that I made at church camp 15, 20 years ago that when I see him today, it's like we never left off. And so our, our spirits recognize one another. And I think that Barnabas and Paul had that. And, and he saw Paul and he saw the marked change in Paul. And he recognized that as Christ. But for a long time, he was the only one. He was the only one. But he, he focused on speaking truth to Paul in love, to build him up, to encourage him. And so if we're going to recognize one another, if we're going to know this, we, we can't talk about that without talking about having a relationship with Christ. Now, I've identified just a few really umbrella-type things to having a relationship with Christ that you need to know who God is. You need to know what God has done. And then you need to know what you mean to God. Uh, think about our worship this morning. We sing this song, Forever Rain. Like Dave said, we, we think about running to God's arms. And I can't think of that without thinking of the book of Luke and the story of the prodigal son. Where is God? Our whole lives, where's God been? God is out there watching for us. And when you're small, you only run to the arms of people that you know will protect you. Sometimes you run to their legs too. And then we think of what God has done. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And 
because of that, our hearts will sing no other name but Jesus. But once you know that, it changes everything. And, and that leads into what you mean to God. And this summer in our study of Romans, we talked about Romans chapter 8, which has all these wonderful things in it. But verses 15 through 17, Paul talks about you've, you've received a spirit. You have not received a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you've received the spirit of sonship. And by that spirit, we cry out to God, Abba, Daddy. By that spirit, we run to his arms, we run to his legs. And that spirit resonates, the Holy Spirit resonates with our human spirit. And it awakens this knowledge in us that we are children of God. That's what you mean to him. And so it's this progression that you find out who God is and then you find out what God has done and then you realize what you mean to God and your life is never the same again. You never ever go back to how you once thought. But when we talk about prophecy and we talk about speaking truth to one another, when I, when I look at Old Testament prophets and when I, and when I look at New Testament prophets and and Jesus and the apostles, their relationship with Christ and Jesus, his relationship with the Father, was the single most important part of their lives. That their time spent with God became the most important time they spent with anyone. And often that time was alone. But that's where they drew strength. That's where they drew power. That's where they drew nourishment. And so in comparison, that time spent with God, and I would venture to say not just time spent here on Sunday morning, but that time that we spend with God has to become more valuable than time we spend with our spouse, time we spend with our children. And I want you to go with me here because those are hard things to say, but I'm talking about in comparison I love spending time with my kids. Anybody who's met Isaiah or seen Nora understands. Anybody who has their own kids understands. I love spending time with my kids. I cannot wait to get home each day and see my wife and my kids. And so how much more do I enjoy time spent with God? In comparison, that time is so much more valuable to me because it... He nourishes me and strengthens me in a way that my wife can't. Could never be able to. She's not designed for that. That my kids can't. That my groups that I meet with during the week, that they can't. Because they were never designed to minister to me that way. Because that's, that's God's purpose. And so if you don't have that time that you spend with Him each day, I would challenge you this week to try and carve out some time. Just try and find a time in, a, in each day that you can meet with him. I, I would challenge you to try and make it the same time each day, the same place. Francis Chan in the book Crazy Love talks about his wife's grandmother. And he said she's just the most godly woman he ever met. And she, her prayer time was on the corner of her bed. 
the corner of her mattress. And the corner of that mattress to her was more holy than any church or any other place she'd ever been. And she would talk about, I can't wait till I get, till I can kneel at the corner of my mattress and, and be with my father. Like every time that she would kneel, they would just pick up where they left off. And so that's where having the same time in the same place every day begins to feed you. My schedule is very hard to have the same time and the same place daily. And so my quiet times sometimes vary. I strive for the same time and place, but it doesn't always happen. And sometimes I miss one. And that's really bad when that happens. You, you know what I do? I just pick it up the next day. Just like you would with anybody. Oh, I can't do lunch today. I'm sorry. I'll catch you, I'll catch you next time. Well, with God, sometimes we miss our time. That's okay. Come back the next day and pick up where you left off. And so if you have this relationship with Christ, some of you are probably still saying, okay, but this prophecy thing, because that word, like we said at the beginning, that word is so ingrained as something that, that, that I don't think it really is all the time. We, we immediately think of, of something that it's not. But this forth-telling God's word, this sharing God's word with one another, again, I've, I've identified just some three very broad things. But like I've been talking about, spend time alone with God. Separate from Bible studies, separate from small groups, separate from corporate Sunday worship. Spend time alone with God. When I was in church camp, I grew up in the United Church of Christ, and I went to a uh, church camp up at Miram, Indiana. Actually, funnily enough, where the Wabash Kairos team stays when they go up. Um, and we had, every morning we had this uh, Bible study that we had to go do. It was called Morning Watch. And they would talk about, uh, Bev was the director's name, and she said, it's just you and God, nobody else around, chillin'. Which was funny. I, it's not funny to you guys, but it was funny to me uh, when I was 12 years old because here's this older woman trying desperately to get on the level of teenagers and middle school kids, and chillin' was, well, that was just as good as she could do. That was okay. But that's what it was. They made sure that the camp counselors made sure that we were far enough apart to where we weren't chatting back and forth, that we were focusing on God's Word. And then she always had a list of questions for us to go through and ask ourselves about what we had read. We had this time alone at the beginning of the day with God. Time alone with God in God's Word. Time in community with God. You know, prayer is not just this one-way conversation. It's this communion. It's this community with God where we share with God those things that are on our hearts. And He shares things too. And so when you, when you have those times with Him and you want to draw strength and you want to draw nourishment and you want to draw sustenance, this should be open. Somewhere. And I think you'll find that more and more things come out that somehow apply to exactly what's going on. 
You know, the root of so much of our distraction from God is fear. Elijah has his life threatened. He's out of there. Moses is having this identity crisis. And he kills a man. And he's out of there. Jonah is just afraid. Nah, they're not going to repent. I know what those people are. And they might repent, but I might get hurt. And so I'm gone. We've all done that. We've all, it took me so long. Those of you that know me, it took me so long to go into a correctional facility. It took me five minutes after entering one to feel like I was at home. I feel safer and more comfortable inside a correctional facility than sometimes I do at my own employer. (laughs) God makes our comfort zone, but we don't think about that. And so we see these incredible men of God run in fear. Tim Keller says this, What then would the effect be if we were to dive even more deeply in Jesus' teaching and life and work? What if we were to be so immersed in his promises and summonses, his counsels and encouragements, that they dominated our inner life, capturing our imagination, and simply bubbled out spontaneously when we faced some challenge? How would we live if we instinctively, almost unconsciously, knew Jesus' mind and heart regarding things that confronted us. When you received criticism, you would never be crushed because Jesus' love and acceptance of you is so deeply in there. When you gave criticism, you would be gentle and patient because your whole inner world would be saturated by a sense of Jesus' loving patience and gentleness with you. This doesn't mean that every time you're criticized, you are consciously, deliberately thinking, What does Jesus have to say about this? You won't have to think it out like that because if Jesus and his word are so deeply in there, they will just fortify you, lifting you up. They will be part of you. You look at yourself through his eyes. You look at the world through his eyes. And it becomes the cast of your whole mind. The way you think changes Turn with me to Luke 21 real quick. Uh, Red Pew Bible, it's page 880. Large print Bible, it's page 1120. Luke 21. We're going to start in verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, Nation will rise against nation. And kingdom against kingdom, there will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. 
You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish, for by your endurance you will gain your lives. Jesus says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom. I will give you words. You don't need to meditate on what you're going to say in, a, in all these situations. And Jesus is clearly talking about the about end times type of stuff here, apocalyptic stuff. But Jesus says, I will give you a mouth. When you need words, I will give you words. And nobody will be able to contradict you. Nobody. Consequently, nowhere in the Gospels do I, say Jesus, do I see Jesus saying, and, and I will reveal to you way ahead of time when the end is going to be. In fact, he says quite the opposite. But why do we try and do that? Why do we like that? I think there's, there's something to be said there. I, I, I struggle with anxiety. I like control. And so we want to know when things are coming. We don't like the fear of the unknown. We want to know when things are coming. And so when a book comes out that tells us when things are coming, it might be worth reading because it may not be true, but what if it is? Then we'll know. I think there's a human quotient there. There's a human anxiety quotient going on there. What I want to... As we start to wrap up this morning, what I really want to hit heavy on is that God met Elijah and Jonah in their brokenness, and he meets us in ours. You know, Moses, like I said, he had this identity crisis. Who am I? I thought I was this, and now I'm this, and I've I've killed a guy. And yet God met him in the midst of all that. I mean, Moses was way off the track. Elijah was way off the track. Jonah was trying to get as far from the track as he could. You know, I think of, I think of Jonah and he gets on this boat and terrible things start happening on this boat. And Jonah says... Just throw me overboard. I mean, these guys are these guys are praying to anybody and everybody they can pray to. And Jonah says, I know what it is. Just throw me off the boat. It'll be all right. And he was right. And see, I was always taught, I was taught by way of a, a felt board with little paper things that you put on. Some of you may have been felt board victims yourself at one point. I was taught that God swallowed Jonah up to punish Jonah. Jonah, you're going to sit in time out in the belly of this fish because you didn't do what I told you to do. That felt board was wrong, as they so often are. The fish was Jonah's salvation. God met Jonah in the belly of a fish and sustained him. And nourished him and restored him in the belly of a fish. Mountaintop I can deal with. I, I hope I'm not so hard-headed it takes a fish. But don't ask my wife about that. 
God met these prophets in solitude. And he strengthened them. And, and for whatever reason, it takes so many times for us, it takes isolation for God to get through. For God to say, I want you to go and say this. I want you to go and do this. This is my purpose for your life. Curtis and I are serving on a Kairos team right now. And I can't look over at Curtis without thinking of our brothers in these correctional facilities that that mean so much to us. I've seen men be strengthened and nourished and sustained and restored in incarceration. I know men today that are more free behind fences and walls than many of us are this morning in here. Because they know who God is and they know what God has done and they know who they are to God. And it didn't happen until they were isolated. And so often God has to take us aside and isolate us. And then we go, oh, okay. John the Baptist had this humongous calling. Where did he spend most of his time? Alone in the wilderness. Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. He says, who did you come to see? Essentially, Jesus says, you come out here to see some crazy guy in the woods? I think the way the Bible puts it is a man in soft clothing. But I think Jesus is really saying, did you just come out here to see some wild-eyed guy? You heard he ate bugs? You heard he dressed in animal skins? And did you just come out here to, just to see what was happening? Just to see what this was all about? I mean, shortly after Jesus' baptism, Matthew chapter 4 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Jesus was led up into the wilderness by the Spirit alone to be nourished, to be sustained, led by the Spirit to prepare for being tempted by the devil. Jesus was tempted by the devil And it never was out of God's hand. Jesus, tempted by the devil. And God was sovereign and in control the whole time. Again, when Jesus is preparing for the crucifixion, he goes and he seeks out time alone to be with God, to be strengthened. The thing that I love about the Bible so much from beginning to end is it shows us when the people of God hit home runs and when they struck out. And I have to see that because I strike out a lot. And so I have to know that when I strike out that I have a loving God who will nourish me and sustain me. And restore me. And in closing, God will strengthen and restore you.
God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? You are not meant for this place. And God may be speaking to some of you this morning and saying, what are you doing here in this part of your life? What are you doing day to day? You weren't meant for this. You weren't built for this. I didn't ever intend you for this. I intended you to take this to the body of Christ and to speak these truths to the body of Christ. I think this morning, before we end, we need to acknowledge the fact that when we look at these stories of Old Testament prophets, God did not let Elijah run from his situation. He didn't let Moses run from Egypt. He didn't let Jonah run from Nineveh. God got to the root of the condition. I don't think that that means that we're always going to understand God's purposes. I mean, you look at Jonah. Jonah goes and does exactly what God intended him to do and exactly what God wanted to happen, happens. The people repent from the top down. It's this glorious thing. They say, God's right. We've got to knock this off. And Jonah is jumping up, on, jumping up and down on top of the hill, jumping for joy, right? Isn't that how it goes? Jonah was mad. Jonah was mad. Jonah says, hey, rain some hellfire down on these people. Do you know what they've done? Kind of takes us back to that prodigal son story we were talking about earlier. Do you know what they've done? And God says, who are you to be upset? Who created these people? Who, who are you to tell me what I should be doing with these? You should be happy. And Jonah goes so far as to say, it's better that, I, that I'm dead, really. And we don't, we don't ever really hear the end of that. If Jonah came to his senses or not, we, we don't know. I'd venture to say it doesn't matter. Jonah understood what he was supposed to do, but he did not understand the ways of God in that situation, at least so far as we're told. Why would we be any different? We're not always going to understand the mind of God. Even when God says, Ed, take this piece and go take it to somebody. Ed's not going to always understand why those words are for them. Or why the words matter. He may never know. But the words matter. I want to close with this last piece from Tim Keller in continuation of what we read earlier. Keller says, this does not happen overnight, of course. It takes years of reflection. It requires disciplined prayer, Bible study and reading, innumerable conversations with friends, and dynamic congregational worship. But unlike learning other thinkers or authors, Jesus' spirit can come and live within you and spiritually illuminate your heart so that his gospel becomes glorious in your sight.
then the gospel dwells in your hearts richly. And we find the power to serve, to give and take criticism well, to not expect our spouse or our marriage to meet all our needs and heal all our hurts. And so through deepening our relationship with God, God uses us in miraculous ways. And you find things coming out of your mouth that did not come from you, that were never yours. And I venture to say much of what God gives us in here is is not ours, but we're simply stewards of it, meant to multiply it, to speak it to others for their edification, for their building up. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, thank you, thank you for your word. God, the fact that it never comes back void. And so you give us these little pieces of it to share with our brothers and sisters. And miraculous things happen. And God, in your power, you could just reach down and zap these situations that encounter us day in and day out. Just erase them. Take care of them. But you don't. You allow us to take part in your work. And it's only because your grace makes us clean enough that we're able to do any of that. So God, we thank you for our time together this morning. God, we ask that you convict us this week about time that we are doing something else that we could be devoting to spending with you each day. God, help us to identify a time each day when we can come before you and spend time alone with you, nobody else around learn from you, God, and grow with you and talk with you. God be with us this week. 